Well, this is a work that is to try to help people become familiar with what is termed paranormal, I think was activities within the Iroquois people that they would term as normal. So when we understand that this life can present a lot of mystery, if we stay connected and we stay close to nature, we can start to see that there is a bigger plan that will provide us with insight to how to work with this, this life. Did you find, Michael, that most Native American, uh, I, I don't want to call them tribes, but sects like the Iroquois, the Sioux, the Apache, were they all different in their belief systems or did they have a common understanding? There was a common understanding, but the Iroquois are quite different in the structure of how they existed. Most were referred to or understood to be tribes. These were a group of people who were connected by a language, and as they developed, they had encounters with beings that were, let's just say, messengers, or they brought insights, and they actually structured themselves to become nations. And that was the foundation of actually what the United States has structured itself or patterned itself after how the Iroquois occupied such a large territory. And they developed this thing into nations, and they actually understood that if they developed this based on a spiritual understanding, that that would help the government grow or help their structure grow and understand that it's an interaction with the people, and it's an interaction with nature. How did their belief system uh, get started, Michael? Well, it was in the beginning. Their, their stories talk about a lot of infighting, and they did have a lot of problems getting established. But as I said, they had a messenger that came to them and traveled amongst these people for a number of years, and actually got them to understand that if they combined their efforts, if they brought themselves together as nations, they could actually achieve much higher understandings, and they could actually work with not only the people but nature and bring themselves to a place that I guess would be looked at as different from any other structure on the planet. And, and they actually are a group that has provided so much insight. And most times they don't really get the credit or get some type of recognition for the work that they've put into this. The, the messenger or messengers, did it come in an angelic form or more of an uh, extraterrestrial form How did, or, or even a ghostly form? Well... Uh, the, the latest one or the last one that they talk about was actually uh, an individual. He had some peculiar traits and characteristics. He, he did have a name, but the name is so sacred that they never repeat the name in public, huh. but they will talk quietly about it, and they, if someone inquires, they will discuss that person's name and they said the reason why they don't discuss it openly in public is that something that is very sacred 
should not be talked about in public, so they keep it in a very sacred manner. It's respect. And they said the only time that they would repeat that name or call upon it publicly is when they need the assistance from this peace messenger. But again, where do you think the messenger came from? Actually, the origins claim that he traveled across the lakes, the, the Great Lakes, mm -hmm. in a stone canoe. And then he traveled to the shores of Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, where he met these people, and he kind of settled in with them for a number of years, and that he brought insight and he brought teachings that they had never heard of before. Can a stone canoe be misconstrued as a spacecraft, perhaps? That's possible. I mean, when you bring in elements that are described by early people, there's a lot of things that we can look at and say, maybe the physics doesn't match up to what they're describing. But I have seen enough things so far that I know that they have these abilities to work with these forces that actually defy physics. In the Iroquois teachings, they talk of stone giants. What's that relationship, Michael? Well, stone giants is a, it's a pretty interesting area because it was actually before the humans were on the planet. But this legend that's been handed down to them describes that these were beings that were actually assisting in the structuring of this land for the humans to occupy it. And they were very powerful beings. And when I asked questions to Mad Bear, he would say, have you ever heard of Bigfoot? And I said, absolutely. And he said, well, our legends tell us that these beings were actually the first, what you would refer to as Bigfoot. But these beings, there were a few that were supernaturally powerful. And these beings would test their powers from time to time. And this one particular one wanted to show off to the creator. So this being demonstrated some of the powers that he thought he had. And the creator was not very impressed. But at one point, the creator said he wanted to show this stone giant some impressive power. And when the creator demonstrated it, the stone giant ended up with a crooked nose. And the reason for that was he bumped into a mountain that the creator had placed right next to him. Huh. And, and the stone giant turned his head and he bumped into this mountain. And because of that, the creator told the stone giant, you've abused your powers and I'm going to remove all of the stone giants from the planet. And the stone giant thought about it for a second and he, he responded and said, you're right, I abused power, but if you will allow us to remain on the planet, 
we will finish the work that we were sent here for. And he said, if you allow us to stay, he said, we will remain out of sight and we will not interfere with the other life forms on this planet. So they were a little apologetic. Uh, yes, they were. And supposedly the legend says that that was granted and they were allowed to stay. And Mad Bear would say, he goes, they are now what we view or think of as the Bigfoot. And they still hold some of those metaphysical powers. Interesting. And there could be, what, a couple thousand of them on the planet, maybe? Oh, I think there's at least that many. Well, and some people have thought that they were very dimensional or spiritual. So, you know, they, they could have had that connection, don't you think? Absolutely. And I also kind of suppose that when we think of interdimensional, that it is actually a part of what we also think of as spiritual. Because they can demonstrate yeah. a non-physical energy or a non-physical place that we don't actually see all the time. But there are instances and there are times when these places actually become visible or we can start to recognize that there are other parts of creation. Michael, in the Iroquois customs and traditions, were ghosts and entities and spirits a part of the norm? They are. In fact, that's why when we start to address what people think of as paranormal, they already accept that these elements exist, and they exist for our benefit, not for our harm. And if we can work with them, if the teachings are handed down, from the time that the children are small and you pass along this insight, the children actually take it from that point and go beyond it. They actually develop more insight. And that's what helps us get to this place where we're saying we are actually in a time when the cosmos is working with this and actually trying to assist us to help us become higher-functioning, conscious human. That's fascinating. And, and this culture, the Iroquois culture, I mean, who taught them this? I mean, did they have shamans within their tribes? They did. And that is one of the parts of understanding that we need to assist other groups that are out there, that they have shamans within their population. But the mainstream doesn't like to accept terms or entities like that because they don't buy into a lot of the concepts that hold us back. And they want these people to become actually higher functioning, not only physically, but higher functioning consciously. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then sure. they can pass that insight. And we don't just pass it to say, here, be content at the level in which we're teaching, you take this and go beyond. We all have that ability to take it to a higher level. A lot of it is connected to behavior. How we actually live our lives will influence and give us options or abilities to move to these higher places. 
Michael, in your book, Urquois Supernatural, the subtitle is ta uh, Talking Animals and Medicine People. What do you mean by talking animals? Well, talking animals are actually real events. These are experiences where the natural world has provided assistance from other species of animals which will come into this is a part of what they call the clan system and the clan system is that you recognize the the geographic area in which you live there are certain animals that inhabit that place and it was in a sense an experiential place where they said in the early days of the creation we were supposed to be the caregivers or the caretakers of all of the life. We're basically what they call a custodian. And you take care of these other elements because they provide us with food, they provide us with clothing, and beyond those physical things, there are certain traits and there are certain characteristics that a wolf will have, that a deer has, that turtles have, that some of the birds have, the eagles, and that's why they understood that it was something of a deeper insight or a deeper recognition of how to treat this, this life and honor it in a way which we don't see today. We haven't seen it too much in other places, right. but it was an actual a part of what they call a way of life. Does the Urukhoi have prophecy like the Hopis? They do. Uh, their prophecies are very similar to the Hopis, but they change a bit where they talk about the geographic area in which they were from. But when you talk about events and the times that they recognize that they said we would enter into. And the reason why we would enter into those is they said there would be behavior by other human beings that would develop these consequences. These consequences wouldn't occur rapidly, but over time, as it accumulated this energy, the cosmos would only have one way to respond to it, but it would give many, many warnings, and it would give you a lot of signs that would tell you things are becoming dangerously out of balance. And if you don't come back to your roots, if you don't express this, live it, and share it with other people, then we would be, in a sense, waiting to see or having to go through a very difficult period of time. Well, the, and of course, Hopi prophecy, Michael, talks about the end of the United States and really, you know, the, the blue star. Uh, Iroquois similar to that? It is similar. I, I'm thinking and perceiving that it won't be necessarily the end of the United States. It will be the end of a system that has misled most of the people. This is why the Iroquois people have been very 
cautious about bringing this information out to the public because it, it can cause fear and it can make people almost make them think that the Iroquois are against this country and actually they're not against this country. They love this country. This is their land. This is where they, they were the first inhabitants. And so they don't want to see drastic, horrible things to happen to the people or to the land. And it really is one of those things where it can be misconstrued or misunderstood that they are holders or predictors of doom and gloom. And actually, they're trying to say, we need to reform while there is time, while we can still act on this and be responsible, we can actually change or alter the path if we were heading in a direction of trouble. We can actually head that off, and that's why I say the behavior is actually one of the main components that is causing what we see as the changes are so dramatic because when the, the natural world sees other humans destroying their, their own life-giving elements, and it says, we, you have to change the ways in which you're doing, that's why it gives us many, many warnings. And it says, if you continue on that path, then these things will happen. And I'm convinced that we are at a very close juncture of almost saying we've gone too far and we can't go back. I'm not of that mentality. I want to think that we always have an opportunity to reverse and to change and we can improve or we can, at least if we can't prevent, we can diminish some of these events that are coming. Michael, dark magic, also called witchcraft, some people say it can be used for good. What do you say? Uh, absolutely. I've seen it demonstrated. Uh, it can also be used for bad, but the example that I saw used was when someone wants to identify uh, an energy or a force that's being disruptive, in order to identify who's connected to that, and there are humans that do connect with those energies. I had seen it demonstrated one time. Mad Bear actually used some, some plants, and he made this medicine. And he asked a few of us if we were interested in participating in this overnight ceremony, which at the time I didn't have a clue what that was about. But as time went on over the decades, it started to sink in because someone asked me, they said, well, what were the plants? And I described it. And they told me, they said, that's used for witchcraft. I, they said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, that's, that's what he was using. And what I was able to piece together over time, and that's why insight is so important for us to pay attention to and to utilize it mm -hmm. to, to help us understand. And what he was doing is he was calling in these elements that he knew can be very disruptive to the human life. 
And he said there were problems that were going on, and he said in order to find out, he said I need to hear from these these beings. And what I was able to piece together over the years by having conversation with other elders, and they said that tricky guy called in these elements, recognized who they were connected to, and that's what was the purpose for bringing them in. Is he knew that if he had to find out who they were connected to, he warned us ahead of time. He said, if you're going to participate, the ceremony starts at sundown. It won't end until sunrise. And he said, if you hear a knock at the door, if you hear a voice call your name, he said, you don't respond. He said, we want to see what is out there. And he says, and we need to fix this problem. So as we went through the evening, I swear there was someone walking across the roof of his house. And we did hear sounds that I've never heard before. And in the morning, Mad Bear said he got the information he needed. And as we traveled out west, he stopped in the places that he was scheduled to meet with certain other elders. And then it turned out that he passed along the information to the people who asked for his help, and he said, he gave the name. He said, this is the person, he said, whom I heard the voice, and he said, as soon as I heard the voice, I recognized that was the, the link that was causing the disruption. So you can use these elements in a positive and a good way by demonstrating that you need to, to get it to come in and expose itself. And actually when people talk about evil and they talk about the darkness and those energies, the best way to fix those things is not to hide them or to run from them, but to bring them out into the open. And you don't want to do this as an individual. You do it collectively with a group of practitioners who understand here's how we can deal with these things and here's where we put it in its proper place. Are there some, though, Michael, who dabble with the dark magic in an evil way? Yes, there are. And I can give you another example Please. Yeah. who did these things, and they actually demonstrated it on Mad Bear. They had gone to another, uh, what they called medicine person, a practitioner of these, these um, gifts and these abilities. And this medicine person said, okay, I will assist you. This person didn't actually do the involvement directly, but indirectly was able to instruct people who wanted to, well, maybe not do harm, but do a lot of disruption to Mad Bear. And Mad Bear had an ability to read these things that were being disruptive as they started to interfere with his life. And he saw, he would do readings to see what was and where it came from, see what was, was coming. And one of the fellas that used to visit with Mad Bear, and I would see him quite often, he told me, he said, you should have been here last night. I said, why? He says, there was this thing that came through the air. He said it was right near sunset. He said, but this thing flew through the air landed in Mad Bear's tree, and 
I said, what do you mean a thing? He said, the only way I can describe this, he said, it looked like a flying liver. He said it squawked, it made these sounds that he's never heard before. He said Mad Bear came out, he witnessed that, he ran back in his house, he grabbed some medicines, he started to talk to it in Tuscarora. He said he pointed to the sky and he was talking to that thing and he said that thing left the tree and headed back from the direction which it came. So I asked Mad Bear, I said, what's going on? What was this? He said, well, there's a person across the lake who is trying to cause a little problem. And he said, she's not directly involved, but mm. she put this, these kids up to this. And when Mad Bear was viewing this, either intuitively or actually doing a reading to, to view this, he said when the, an average person will point in a direction, they usually point with their index finger. And he said, if you do that, he said, point for me. And I demonstrated. And he said, now turn your hand up. He said, you have three fingers pointing back at you. He said, when people who are practitioners of this energy, when they point, they point with their whole arm and their hands flat, and all the fingers are pointing in the same direction. And he said, all I did was tell this thing to go back where it came from and never to come back and bother anybody here again. So he said, it went back to the people who sent it, and he said, but it came back to them with three times the force that they sent it out. Yep, it always does, doesn't it? It absolutely does. Yeah. And he said they were contacting him, asking him to stop this bad medicine and, and telling him to stop it. And he said, I'm not creating any bad medicine. He said, I'm not, I can't stop something that I didn't start. He said, all I did was send it back to whoever sent this. He said, if they want to stop it, he said, they have to go back to the other practitioner and they have to work with them to have this thing to stop. Tell me a little bit about false face. What is false face? Well, false face and the false faces are, it's a part of the culture which when most people observe from the outside, they would call those masks. And the masks can be ceremonial. It doesn't mean that they all are. But the ones that are ceremonial are the ones that they call false faces. And they actually have ceremony to bring these false faces into a place where they gather once a year and they bring their sacred cornmeal and they actually feed these masks and they have ceremony with them to tell them. And actually the masks are constructed with the design of the crooked nose that goes back to the stone giants. And they, the name of that mask, they call it Hot Dewey. Now, the Hot Dewey, the Iroquois say, are, it's the most powerful. They don't go into a lot of detail, although I know people in that society, and I know Mad Bear was in that society, 
And the reason they don't go into a lot of detail publicly is they said, this is a very sacred area. And they said, we honor and respect that by not just talking about it to anybody. Uh, one other example that verified these statements, Mad Bear would have many visitors, and there was a time I happened to be there, and a man came into his house, and when he walked in, he started to stare at Mad Bear's false face. And Mad Bear asked him politely, he said, you know, he said, you don't really understand, but he says, that's like staring at another human. He said, if you stare too long, it's uncomfortable. He said, I don't want you to disturb or make the false face feel uncomfortable. And the guy didn't really buy into this. So Mad Bear explained a little bit more to him, and he said, you know, when we use these for ceremony, he said, it's our responsibility to treat them as a living thing. And he said, we feed them. And the guy was not buying into it even more. So Mad Bear told him, he said, look, I don't know who you are or why you're here. And the man identified himself as a reporter. And Mad Bear said, well, I'm glad that you do investigative work. And he said, I'm going to show you something that I don't usually show to most people. He said, the hair on this false face grows. He said, these are living things. And the man kind of chuckled, but Mad Bear said, come on over. He said, we'll measure the length of the hair. He said, you come back in a year from now, and we will remeasure that hair. Hmm. When the man came back, they remeasured the hair, and the hair had grown. He never made any more comments or ridiculed Mad Bear. He said, you know, he says, I almost have to see things like this to believe that it's possible. And when those things are demonstrated, and here's the part that seems to be really difficult for the outside world to understand. These experiences are not made or designed for entertainment. They're not there for us to show off. And when they can be shown, and he did that for a specific reason, to have someone come to recognition that there are inexplainable events and there are things that just don't make logic sense to us, but they are a part of this insight and this understanding that they've held on to for centuries. And they've keep developing these abilities and keep developing these talents, but there's been a period of time when there was a great disturbance or a great interruption of these teachings. And that was shortly after the European arrival. It really got interfered with. And the, at that particular time, the Iroquois were very open and willing to share all of these insights, but they didn't fit into the type of structure that we're experiencing right now. And we can kind of see that the structure that we are going through 
is it's just about maxed itself out. I was gonna I was gonna say, Michael, are we going through, based on 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 what they see, some incredible times, and and are these times fixable? They are fixable, but at the current state and the current ways that people are addressing it, they're using the same old, same old that doesn't do anything. And what we really need to do and what we're hoping to do is use this opportunity to get this information into everybody's hands, make it available to everyone. It is probably intro 101 of reconnecting with people who they believe but believing only is one part of. They need to interact with. But this is where it comes into a place where you say, be careful and cautious because we can enter into places that we may think that we are prepared and we're ready to handle or encounter. And there is one portion of when we ask people to Take the initiative and we say, ask for help. Ask for insight. And we give them what we have as one of the elements which we know works to assist with this. It's what we call sacred tobacco. It's a plant that we grow locally here, but it's only used for ceremony. Sacred tobacco. What, what would they call it? Well, it, it is in the tobacco family but it's not designed for leisurely smoking. Is it peyote? Or? No, it's not peyote, it, it is, but it is a, a powerful plant. Um, the legend behind that goes back to a flood time when it was a purification of the planet, and that was one of the first plants to come back to the native people, and because of that, they've honored by using this plant when someone is sick, when we need to collect medicine, when we need to ask for assistance, we offer this. You, you burn it. You can make a small fire, and you can put it in a small fire. Some people will put it in a pipe, but it certainly is not something you would want to inhale. Now, when they, the offering is made, one of the things that I've experienced with feedback from a lot of people is they'll say, well, you know, we, we did what you said, and they said that was months and months ago, and they said, we're still waiting. And, and I said, there is one part I probably should have had you include. I said, you see, because we all have an ego, we always think that we're ready to encounter certain insights or learn about certain information. And I said, the problem with that is we think we're ready. I said, you need to include this little disclaimer while you're doing this. And that disclaimer is, when I'm ready. I said, because we all think that we're ready, and most times we're not. And I said, you could walk out of the place where you made the offering. The information you asked for could cross your path, and you would continue to walk on by and not even recognize it, and yet your prayer was answered, but you weren't ready to recognize it. So there's a lot of little insights here that we want to pass along to assist people 
to help them have more success with their insight journey and with their practicing. Well, that might work. Now, when when they picked up their teachings, which influenced their prophecy, we're, and we may not have time for this, but I want you to think about this, uh, Michael, if you can. Mm-hmm. What do they say about the future? I mean, are they upbeat about it? Well, it, it, that the future is actually very similar to many of the other uh, prophecies, the other warnings that are out there, which does tell us we could avoid most of these changes to the degree in which we're seeing them now. But when we saw that last earthquake that hit Japan, the feeling that came in to me was it's too late. And the reason why I believe that it's, it's too late, and I don't like to believe that, but the reason that I believe that it's too late is collectively, in order to get enough people together to initiate a change to the cosmos, to, to signal the cosmos to say, no, wait, don't continue on with these activities. We really can address this. There is a lag time. Why were the Native Americans so close to the land? Well, the land is what actually supports and provides everything that we need to live in this life. And one of the questions that I ask routinely is, does the natural world need the human being? And it really doesn't. But the other part of the question is, does the human being need the natural world? Absolutely. Without that, this creation continuously providing everything that it does and acknowledging that, that's one of the areas in which they learned from examples and events that had happened to their people, mm-hmm. that if they didn't pay attention and they didn't acknowledge this miraculous creation that continuously restores and renews and provides an abundance for all of this life, then they knew that there would be there would be problems. And actually in the the geological and historical by their history, they have accounts of four different what they refer to as world changes. And they said the world changes would have occurred anyway, but some of them were actually started by or encouraged by the humans by not continuing to remember that it is their duty to interact with and acknowledge the the greatness of this whole creation and how it works. So when they hand that information down to the next generation, that next generation understands that if we don't continue to honor these cycles, that they will become disruptive. 
if we can have everyone at least acknowledge that this is a way of interacting with and showing our gratitude towards the other life forms that are out there and saying, you know, this really is part of our responsibility is to acknowledge at some point in time, even if you don't do it daily, but if you become routine with it, mm-hmm. you start to see events that will unfold and you will see things that will come into your life. And as you know, there are no such things as coincidences. <laughs> You've been listening, Michael. All the time. All right, let's take some calls. Luke is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Go ahead, Luke. You're on with Michael Bastine. Cool. Hello, Michael. Hello. Um, when I was 11, uh, just turning 11, I lived on Lake Seneca with my parents in the woods. Yep. And an experience I had there, which I never share hardly with anyone, uh, happened to me. And I really believe that uh, it was very shamanic and special. And I was... Uh, I was uh, in the woods a lot all the time. My parents got used to me always going off into the woods for hours or a whole day, and I would climb trees, and I talked to the animals, and I built an altar to nature. But one, one summer morning, I woke up early in our home, and we were only three houses out in the woods. Uh, I, I woke There were three separate houses, and we were in the middle house, and I had my two brothers were there, and I was almost 11. And I dreamt of a circle of snakes, uh, about a hundred snakes intertwined in a, a perfect circle, and in the dream, this was early in the morning. Uh, some of the snakes, as I as I in the dream, I approached the snakes in the woods, in awe of them, and I walked up to them to look closely at the snakes. Some of them turned and looked at me, and I I immediately woke up from the dream frightened. And it was about six in the morning, I think, or six thirty. It was about in June, I believe, and I uh, was so amazed at my dream. I went down to the kitchen and made some sandwiches and decided to and put them in a, a little paper bag and decided to go in the woods to find the snakes. I knew I just felt I was going to find those snakes, and I went in the woods for oh three, four, five, perhaps four hours, maybe five hours, searching and searching all morning. And my parents were used to me getting off in the woods even in the morning and not coming back till late and later in the day. And it was it was pro- I think it was a weekend because. Um, when I got when I I searched and searched in the woods, and I came back. I don't know it could have been any time. It was, the school was out. School was out. I, I was I was coming back just very uh, sad that I couldn't find the snakes in my dream, and I was approaching the house in the clearing, and I was still in the woods, and there were the snakes, the exact snakes that I dreamt, in a circle. And as I approached, the, uh, and I. My jaw was, you know, just, oh, I was, just, I, I, was I was amazed, and, and but I was thrilled, but also, you know, in shock. But I, I walked up to them just as in my dream, and the same three or four snakes turned and looked right at me. And I ran to the house, frightened, and no one was home. They must have all gone off. It was, it was, it was summertime. And uh, they were used to me being in the woods for hours, so they went off somewhere. And I ran up to my bedroom jumped into, into, under my covers, shivering for about a half hour, frightened. And then I said, I've got to go back and see them again. And I went to find them, and they were gone. Yeah, that is actually a ritual that the snakes go through in the springtime. And there are many things that we can learn from by observing and watching 
what they do and how they interact, but your dream is directly connected to giving you an introduction or, or getting you acquainted with things that sometimes we're told are evil or scary and we shouldn't go near them. And we have a much different perception of handling and, and looking at those types of activities. But you did. You certainly had a, a great experience there. And for you to, I, I'm going to say almost not a dream, it's more of a vision. And uh, if you continue to do activities in the woods, these things will actually show themselves to you. Well, I want to... Well, there he is. Yeah. Okay. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I just wanted to say, I eventually became uh, a close friend of the Hopis and lived with the Hopis, and they adopted me as a son. And, you know, when people demonstrate a certain nature, and it, it is very compatible with the native philosophy of life, they are very willing to adopt people into their their nation or into their their communities and it's because they want people to feel comfortable and to be around them because they've recognized that you hold certain elements that they need more people like you and we all need more people like you to come forward and participate because this is actually what we're moving into is collectively getting as many people on board so that we can work as a group to address these issues and these things that have been neglected for way too long. Let's go to Brad now in Syracuse, New York. You're up with us. Hi, Brad. Go ahead. Hi, George. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? I'm good, good Brad. Great show. <clears throat> um, I have a question, but I was thinking about land management. If anybody wants to see what you're supposed to do, when there's a flood, just study a beaver pond because when it's dry out, they put the, the dam at one end of the pond. But when there's too much water, they'll also build a dam up the other end of the pond. I have a beaver dam behind my, a pond behind my house, and it's, it's just really relaxing watching that whole thing go, go on. They're pr my, pretty good engineers, aren't they? Yes, they are. They're amazing. <laughs> but my question to you was, uh, my favorite show of all time on television was Northern Exposure. And I just wanted to ask Michael if he thought that the whole, uh, with, with the fellow that played Leonard, uh, Graham Greene, who, by the way, when that man talks, I'm just drawn to him. If you ever wanted to have a spokesperson for what you want to convey, he's, he's just absolutely the best. And I, but I wanted to know if you thought they did a really good job depicting that whole, um, the whole spirit thing of the shamans and, and everything else. And by the way, if anybody's stressed out, Go get some northern exposure and sit and watch a few of those things because you'll, you'll feel a lot better afterwards. And I'll take my, my answer off the phone. Thank you, George. Thank you, Mark. All right. Great. You got it. What, uh, what are your observations there, Michael? Absolutely. Thank you for that observation because most people don't see the finer points because they're looking at so many different images. They haven't been instructed or they haven't even actually worked on trying to go to the insights that are behind a lot of the activities that we encounter daily. And if people could just ease back and slow down a little bit, but what was done in Northern Exposure 
has it, it is very accurate to the the real events. And in fact, with Graham Greene involved, I'm sure that those were inspired through some of his stories. Well, I'm sure they were too. Let's go to Portland, Oregon. Hey, Dust, go ahead. Yes. Hi. Thank you. Sure. Ah. Uh, I'm going to say something pretty fast. Um, I come from a large family across many nations. One of my names is Many Nations because we have so many different nations. But we also have some very good people, power people amongst all those numbers. And anyway, I want to just send out four powers for the future because we do have a lot of uh, fear in our hearts, which is increasing. But these are important fear. These are important uh, powers. And uh, the first power, not, and I wish this to be taken seriously, the first power, which is quite significant, is birth control. Birth control is extremely important. People can have control for their lives and for their children. It's something that can be used. Another power, this sounds silly too maybe, bicycles. Bicycles are very important. They do help. They help the planet breathe. They hate they help you breathe. Another power is beauty. Look around. Find the beauty around you. Treasure it. Beauty above you. Beauty below you. Beauty all around you. Bring more beauty. And then the last one, which you could also help with, Mr. Nori, is bond. Bond, bond, particularly with the old, particularly with the young. Also our animal friends, bond with them. And also, Mr. Nori, you might want to start like a singles club for followers of Coast to Coast. I think that there are many people out there that enjoy your show, and um, they might like to meet one another. So that's the end of my ideas. And I think old Glennis McCants is working on something like that, the numbers lady. So she may be doing that. And I'll, Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, it, those are all very good issues and good points that she's brought up because when we start to look at the finer points and we start to see that it really does rely on our involvement, we, we are not are supposed to sit back and just go along for the ride. We're supposed to participate with this life. And as we interact and we participate, we will even learn the higher teachings this is, I'll tell you, in the few years when I first started hanging around and traveling with the, the elders, I learned more in those first few years than I have in any of the schooling that I've ever, I've ever had. And they teach you in such a way that they allow you to make the discoveries. When you lead people to a certain point and then you let them continue making the discoveries, those are the lessons. Those are the things that stick with them forever because those are the things that they go, wow, I accomplished something with a little assistance, but they actually get involved and they, they rise up to the challenges that we are facing right now. Michael, how did Mad Bear influence you? Oh, man. Well, you know, Mad Bear's approach to... Almost any, any issue, any experience in this life, and I have never met anyone that even comes close to Mad Bear. Mad Bear was a very direct get involved with whatever the issue may be. And what he showed me is that 
if you enter into these, these elements calmly and assertively, that that energy actually surrounds you. And you can, believe it or not, have a little faith in yourself. You can actually do things that you would think that you weren't capable of doing. But over the years, the influences that I look back at from Mad Bear have continuously resurfaced and assisted me to never throw the towel in, don't ever give up, don't, you can get frustrated. You don't need to get angry. I think anger just clouds and it disturbs and it interrupts the focus that we need to hold on to to get through those difficult times. So a lot of his experience of just the influence of being around someone like Mad Bear has just been an incredible help to see that work and then align yourself with it, and you become a part of how to interact with these the difficulties of this life. Let's go to Sioux City, Iowa. Jane Lynn is with us. Hi there. Uh, yes. Say, this is an interesting program. I was wondering if your guest would be able to explain to me what I saw about four years ago. We'll try. Um, well, I let my dog outside in the morning, and she was running around in the backyard, and I noticed something up in the tree, and uh, it looked like a cross between a, a squirrel and a fox, but it wasn't real solid. You know, it was, it just wasn't real solid, but I saw it sitting there. Like ghostly watching, looking? Well, like um, a shadow-like in a way. All right. It was sitting in the tree limb with his tail wagging and watching my dog. You know, amusingly watching my dog running around, and I'm going like, what is this? Am I seeing what I'm seeing? So I walked outside, huh. went around the tree, and reached out to it, and it just poofed, dis disappeared. Like in a puff of smoke, gone. And not a puff of smoke, but it just, boof, it was gone. All right, what, what was that, Michael? That's a great experience. Um, I'm, I'm getting a few insights to it. It seems as if... There are visitors that come in, and they are a part of what that, that term that they call shape-shifting. And they come in to observe, and they come in to observe to see how, and maybe in the particular area in which you're in, how life is going. And so you are a direct contact. And when you decided to walk over to it, most people wouldn't do that. Most people would look at it, and if they were unfamiliar with it, they wouldn't want to go too close. But by you going close and not exhibiting fear, these things get a good feel for how life is being lived. It's a demonstration of living in a balanced way, of going beyond where we live and what we do, Going beyond is one of the things that our tr this cosmos is trying to encourage for all of the humans to go beyond the point of what we get comfortable with status quo and just wanting to observe average stuff. But when you experience things like this, those are special events, and they're for you. It, it's also for you to share with others. So I thank you for that. Michael, does the Iroquois, do they have um, 
stories of thunderbirds, those large birds? They do. That seems to be a common subject that is known amongst all of the, the native peoples. And I'm thinking that they were so prevalent and so common that it, it became a part of their record keeping. It, be, it became a part of the life. And I think that they started to recognize these these beings, or sometimes they, they refer to them as the thunder beings, as part of the elements that we were to acknowledge. And they that's why they, they have legends that explain to them that if they don't continue to make acknowledgments, that many things go away. It may also be a part of when the world changes occur, that some of the life doesn't evolve or doesn't change its vibration to the compatible level that it will continue to exist as we know it in this physical form. Okay, let's go to final calls now. Let's go to Ziad in Puyallup, Washington. There you go, Ziad. Go ahead. Hello, Jory. Thank you for taking my call. Sure thing. I just got a quick question. Um, what do you think um, of uh, the whole human being and people seeing things like Bigfoot, you know, the Big Bird and all that? Do you think it's an experimental thing that just went wrong? No, I, I don't think in those places and in those terms, when we see objects like the, the stone objects that are in Egypt, I think those are interactive things, and they may not have been done by humans on this planet. They may have been a part of interacting with civilizations outside of our solar system. Okay, thank you. Let's go next to Jerry, Springfield, Massachusetts. Hi, Jerry, go ahead. Hi, George, Mike. Uh... I just want to tell you, this is verification of what you're talking about with the stone men. Uh, back uh, 15 years ago, I picked up the book by uh, uh, Bill, Wild Bill, uh, uh, I mean, uh, Buffalo Bill Cody, one of the great sure. heroes in the West. And he uh, was in the, you know, he's a, he was in the plains. He did a lot of uh, hunting with buffalo and whatnot, and very, very friendly with the Indian, plain Indians. And one, one night, or one day, I think it was, uh, the, the Indians came over with a wagon, with this tremendous bone in it, a real big thigh bone. And he says, you know, what's that from? So, she, so the Indians explain that eons ago, there was a legend that eons and eons ago, there was these Indians, an Indian that was so big that had the bone in him, you know, a tremendous bone. He was so big that he could he'd pick up a buffalo and run with it under his arm. So that gives verification to what you're talking about right, right in the printed page. Yeah, it, it is been recorded, and there have been widespread uh, notations of this, and that's when we do understand when it gets explained by other than one source, when we see it in many places, then we know that these things existed, and we know that we need to look at that. There's a reason for this information to come into our lives and for us to look at it, we it, ho it actually helps us open and become more insightful. And that's the key to assisting all of this life 
to get prepared for what we're about to experience. And, and actually, it's not an all-bad thing. It really is for our whole benefit that the Earth and the cosmos and all the components that are in our solar system, they're actually working in an effort to make us higher-functioning beings. Let's go to Daniel now in Monroe, Virginia, east of the Rockies. Go ahead, Daniel. You're on with us. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask your guest, um, see, I'm a practicing Druid. I have been one for about two years now. And uh, before that, I was practicing pagan for about ten years, uh, neo-pagan. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask your guest what his um, opinion is of neo-paganism in general and what the basic shaman, your average shaman's um, opinion would be of uh, neo-paganism. Yes, uh, paganism is a term which has been applied to people who don't conform to a lot of the, the religions that follow certain other doctrines. And basically it is a, a nature-based function or belief. And when you go nature-based, it really does give you the, the feeling and the understanding that this creation was designed and designated for us to observe on a daily basis. And when we look at the intricate parts of this creation, we see that there are cycles of alignment, there are cycles of seasons, and when you break the cycles down, we, we start to see that these were designed to show us that we are to interact with and prepare for these changes. So you can do it on a smaller scale. It's like changing of seasons. When we start heading into another season, we make preparations. So when you apply that to the bigger cycles, to the bigger changes, we need to reconnect with are the forces and the elements that are being provided to us actually being used the, the way they were intended to be. Michael, tell us about sacred sites. Why are they sacred? Well, sacred sites are places which demonstrate to have an enhancement of when you do a ceremony, when you want to interact with other life forces. These places, I guess you can also refer to them as vortexes or vortices. Mm -hmm. Or you can actually feel, people who are sensitive enough will actually feel a change in that experience when they get into those places. And they're actually designed not only to be rejuvenating, but people have said that they've witnessed deer and other animals will actually congregate in these places and they seem to really enjoy being in that spot. And when you enter into it, it's designed to help us not only feel better, but it's designed for us to improve how we are interacting and how we can help other people go to sacred sites. And when you do these ceremonies, they actually do become enhanced. Okay, who's up next? We go to John, Bronx, New York. Hey, John, thanks Hi. for calling. Hi. How are you, George? 
Hello, Michael. Um, Hello, yeah. Hi, how are you? Um, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the Sundance ritual. Um, I have a friend uh, who's uh, half Navajo and Hopi, and she has expressed her desire in the future to participate in the Sundance ritual. Now, I wanted to ask, uh, um, what benefits does the Sundance ritual bestow upon the participant, and what are the risks, if any, involved? Well, those are interesting questions. The uh, Sundance ritual is not typically one of the East Coast. I am familiar, and I do have friends that do participate with the Sundance. The Sundance is it's a designation when people have reached a certain stage in life and they want to commit to doing some activity, some ceremony that they want to, because when you do a Sundance, these are not things taken lightly, and they actually expect you to follow up and stay involved with basically for the rest of your life. So when people start to look at this, and if they're non-native, I do know of a few instances where non-natives have participated with the Sundance. In the Sundance, it's actually using yourself as a sacrifice. It's not to sacrifice your life, but you're using the physical part of our existence that sometimes we go through suffering, but the suffering that you bring into your life can be offered instead of something like sacred tobacco, cornmeal, uh, sweet grass, sage, but you can, you can actually, people will use their body, and this is what is understood to be of the highest offering. It's not like you're saying, here, sacrifice me on an altar, but you are interacting with a really difficult experience, and you really do go through a lot of difficult times. I'm going to say it, it is, in a sense, uh, very trying for a lot of people to go through the Sundance because most people will start at, a, I guess, an event that is not as difficult to do. Sweat lodges are a part of ceremony, and I wouldn't recommend most people to, to go out and to try a Sundance because it really is going to the highest level of offering yourself as part of a sacrifice. We haven't talked too much about little people. What are they? Well, little people are a real interesting part of this creation. They are beings that were put here, they're powerful. They're really powerful beings. I'm going to say that they're other, on the other end of the spectrum from the stone giants, from the, the uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot. But these beings are trickier. They, they like to play with people. They typically like children. And they are expressly involved with interacting with nature. They, they really enjoy all of these little insights that most humans don't get to see because they're 
they're in a smaller part of life. Uh, like when we talk about microbes, those are still tiny particles of the physical. But these little people, and they're everywhere. All cultures seem to have them. They've been referred to in some as fairies. I know the Irish, uh, most people understand that to be a leprechaun. But they exist throughout the, the planet. And they're actually here to assist us when we really need some help. This is help that comes from not so much of a divine order, but it is, these are, in a sense, beings that can dematerialize and rematerialize, and they seem to be able to use their abilities to come in and out of focus. Some people actually see them in the sense of some may view them as like shadow people, but these are actual humans. And at one point in Mad Bear's life, he pulled out a little bundle. And when he opened it up, he showed me a human skull that was about the size of an appliance light bulb. And it had the full set of teeth. And he said this was found in central New York in the 1800s. He said when they were excavating and putting in one of the canals, He said they found this, and it was handed down through the Iroquois people, and Mad Bear actually had that. And he says, we do use this on rare occasions in ceremonies. He said, we are acknowledging that these are a part of this life. We're not afraid of them. But he said, we don't want to ignore the parts of this life that we know we need to include and acknowledge and participate with. Michael, before we take final calls, tell us about where people can get your book, Iroquois Supernatural. Yeah, it's on Amazon, and it can also be purchased through um, Inner Traditions. It's uh, Baron Company. They also do have not only a website, but if people wanted to make contact uh, to me or for me, they can do it at author at in, innertraditions.com, and they will forward. I'm kind of in a primitive lifestyle here uh, intentionally. I like the privacy, and I like living the, the style I have, but the book is available, and uh, you can make contact through that. And there was one other a uh, little piece I would like to add. Go ahead. At www.peacevillageelders.com, that is a place where there is a video that you can actually purchase, and it has myself and many other elders that participated over a number of years in Vermont. And you can see actual demonstrations in here Different, it's, it's got diversity, so it has different perspectives, but we all have the same goal. We have the same desire to share information with people so that they can help themselves and join with us in making this a better life. 
Good for you. Let's go to Russ now, Boston, Massachusetts. Hi. Um, hi. Hi. Hey, Russ. Um, I was wondering what Michael thought about the uh, the ritual use of tobacco in the Native Americans, and um, is it the same thing as the ritual use of uh, ayahuasca and the Amazon natives? Do they use it to unlock or aid knowledge? Well, I've participated with ayahuasca. We had some friends of ours from the Peruvian jungle come up to North America, and it. It is not like ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is closer to the peyote ceremonies, and what those things are to help people with is when you reach a certain level of understanding and you reach a certain level of insight, this takes you one more step. And it does have this altering effect, but if you are in the right mind, you will be able to use that to take you to another level. 